Hi, good evening. I'm Robert Cooper. This is Tim Judah. Hi. And he's going to tell you. He's going to tell you about Ukraine. Um, uh, and I'm supposed to tell you about him first. He's he's written for he's written for the Economist New York Review of Books for a long time. Uh, I I know him, and I think I probably first met him in Kosovo. I know him because of what he's done on Kosovo, but he was a long-term writer on the Balkans, and still is, I guess, and um, uh, also a graduate of this university. Um, uh, I, think, I, think that, I think that your book on Kosovo is about the only book on Kosovo, actually. Well, I think there's one or two more since then, but uh, yeah. actually not, not very many. Yeah, but it's, it's, uh, uh, it's still the best one. Thank um, you. And, um, uh, and uh, Tim has now published a book on, uh, on Ukraine, um, a slightly more populated field, but actually not that populated. Uh, well, in fact, that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book, was because when I began to look, f- when, I began to, when I began as a journalist to cover uh, Ukraine, uh, then I realised, or I began to look for books, and I realised that there were a there were a couple of serious history books and a couple of serious books about politics. But actually, for such a huge country, there was, like, surprisingly little. I mean, for a country with 45 million... Oh, I think this is not supposed to be happening. Sorry, so I'm going to... Um, this is not now. It's gone on to the screensaver, so I'm going to quickly... Okay. Yeah, no, sorry, it was going on to the screensaver. But what I was saying was that, actually, for um, such a huge country, there was surprisingly little which really gives a kind of feel of the country. And... And, and that's actually what I wanted to do. And I'm just going to start with, with a couple of uh, pictures um, because I just thought, it, you know, the whole point of the book was to make uh, Ukraine a kind of three-dimensional place full of living, breathing people. And the problem was that with the books that I just that existed, I felt that they didn't... They, they all served their purpose, but there was not much which went beyond a straight history or straight uh, politics. So the point of the book was really to talk to people like this. These, these were the ladies who, who came to man uh, the barricades at the beginning of the rebellion in the east um, of Ukraine in a town called uh, Slovyansk, which became uh, the, um, the sort of uh, rebel stronghold until the Ukrainian, uh, the Ukrainian uh, military kicked them out again, or kicked, kicked the rebels um, out again. Uh, what you can't see from that picture is that, is that actually they were in front of the they were in front of the tires, uh, and the men with the guns were behind them, uh, and the, oh, the women were uh, were were at the front there. Um, but still, everybody has a story to tell, and that's what I wanted to do, and that's why I was there as a journalist, and that's why um, I, you know also I wanted to show these pictures and I put put these pictures in the book because it was important for me to sort of, you know, make sure that, you know, to to really make it a kind of three-dimensional place. This is a lady called uh, Olena Yemchenko, who's an artist, um, but she, with her husband and her brother, or brother, yeah, her brother actually, uh, ran a company in uh, Donetsk, which is now uh, the capital of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic. And, um, you know, her tale is another, is, a, is an important tale because it, it brings in, actually, it, something which I, as a foreigner, I, you know, didn't know and I understood going there, was that in a place like Donetsk, with a peculiar and specific kind of Soviet legacy, there was also a class element to this uh, conflict in the sense that middle class, the middle class educated people like this were all basically the pro-Ukrainian class 
in Donetsk. And they've all left. There are like very few of them, very few of them left now. So people like her and her family, um, you know, entrepreneurial, um, creative, they've either gone to other parts of Ukraine or they've, or they've gone abroad. <laughs> this is one of the first people to die in the conflict, uh, a man called Volodymyr Rybak, and that's his wife and he um, remonstrated with rebels when they uh, put out the flag in a town called Golovka um, at the beginning of the conflict. And um, a few days later, or a week or two later, was found um, dead at the bottom of a river with a, a knapsack uh, full of stones attached to his uh, back. Um, and I, put, I want to talk about him and these people, these are rebels firing over the grave of a young man called Alexander Lubinets, who was probably, I think, 19, if I remember rightly, uh, a rebel in, who joined the rebels in a village um, close to, or relatively close to Slavyansk. And it occurred to me, having been a journalist, having covered the Balkan Wars, that it's in everybody in the former Yugoslavia remembers the names of the first people to die. And these were the fir- amongst the first people to die. And after that basically everyone became numbers and and that's what happened but since i was there i wanted to record them this is a lady she she lives in slovyansk and i have to say she was very typical of some of the people who many of the people who lived there a kind of fluid identity but at the end of the day she said you know what i just don't really care who's running this place if it's the russians or if it's ukrainians i just want to be able to buy a pair of a new pair of shoes and to have enough money to look after uh, my family and so well, that's why there's a section about her in the book. By contrast, this is a, a, a lady who lives in a very Ukrainian, solidly Ukrainian part of the country, uh, 90, 90 kilometers south of Kiev, uh, where they were literally doing everything they could to, to collect food for soldiers, collect clothes for soldiers, to fill the gaps. They'd come to help people. They'd gone to to help at the, during the Maidan Revolution, and after that, they had um, gone, as I said, she was, they, they were like knitting, sort of buying socks and underpants and everything that the, the military lacked. And this is one of the reasons that the Ukrainian military, it kind of solidified them, that they had these people behind them. Uh, Bis, by contrast, is now the, he is now uh, the rector of Donetsk University. Um, he's a kind of ideologue of uh, the Donetsk Republic. Um, and he's typical of that kind of ideological, small ideological class in Donetsk, but also present in Russia, of course, who think that the Russian, Russia's borders should take in everything that was Russia uh, before 1914. So Lviv, or Lvov in the West, which was Austro-Hungarian, well, like, maybe he says that can go, but the Baltic states, everything else that was Russian has to come back uh, to Russia and the Russian Empire must be uh, recreated. It's a, pretty, uh, it's a pretty tasteless flag. Where does that come from? Well, the flag, the flag, the, the black, uh, the blue and the red is the flag, which was briefly the flag of the Donetsk Krivorog Republic, I, know, I may have pronounced it wrong, in um, 19... Uh, 18, which was a sort of brief, uh, a brief affair, uh, but also at a point when uh, the communists and the, and the Russians uh, the, and were uh, uh, opposing the creation of a Ukrainian state, uh, which at that point was backed by the Germans in 1918. 
uh, and then they've, re- they've put over it a sort of Russian double-headed uh, eagle. Uh, I also wanted to talk about uh, the other extreme. Uh, these are the Azov Battalion with their neo-Nazi symbol. Um, important because they garnered a lot of bad publicity for Ukraine. Uh, numerically pretty small. Um, but I have to say that they really didn't help the Ukrainian uh, cause, uh, internationally uh, anyway. And finally, it's not only people. This is an incredible story, like even people in Ukraine don't know this, about the zebras, uh, the steppe zebras close to the border with Crimea. And uh, the zebras actually uh, were there, have been there more or less since 1880 or 1890. Uh, a German a local German sheep magnet in the late 19th century um, decided he would... He was one of the first environmentalists. He carved out a lot of the steppe to keep it as virgin steppe. And then he started um, populating it with um, bison and zebras and uh, uh, all sorts of other animals. And incredibly, this place called Askania Nova, which also, throughout communism, kept its uh, name, which came from a kind of uh, German, kind of the aristocratic German title, uh, one of the titles of the German nobleman who set it up in the late 18th century, this village. Um, It has survived the Russian Revolution, the Civil War, uh, First World War, Stalinism when half the the scientists were carted off, um, the Second World War, uh, post-war communism, uh, the transition afterwards. Even the village of 7,500 people, there's only like half the people left because there's not much there. But this thing has just gone on from strength to strength, and it is quite an extraordinary uh, place. I'm having to say that one thing is that that I didn't realize that zebras could be quite aggressive, and uh, one of the zebras had just kicked the other one to death overnight, uh, which explains why one is lying down. But apart from that, which would be an everyday occurrence, of course, um, well, back on the the savannah, perhaps, uh, in Ukraine, it's quite annoying for them when they discover one of their zebras has been killed. So that's... um, those are the ten slides I wanted to show to, to, to start off with. To give, a, to give an impression of the enormous variety of the country, but let's, but let's actually start with the, with the war. That was, what, that was what brought you to Ukraine. Uh, well, yeah, initially, actually, I had, um, the, I had the kind of journalistic misfortune to have gone, I'd say misfortune, I was sent by the New York Review, I, was, I went and I had done a large piece for the New York Review of Books uh, just over two years ago, pegged to the Vilnius summit at which all Mr. President Yanukovych's people and everybody in Kiev had assured us that, uh, that um, Ukraine was going to, to sign up to the EU agreements. So I wrote this long piece. Oh, that's called okay. I wrote this long piece and, um, of course, it went out of date. The whole thing, 3,000 words or 4,000 words, went out of date because then they didn't sign up. Then the, revolu- then the revolution began, and because the New York Review of Books has quite a long lead time, I was kind of constantly kind of having to run to update. But that was the beginning of my kind of ser- I mean, I had been before to Ukraine, and uh, but the beginning of my serious uh, journalistic engagement with the country. And then, of course, the, by spring, then the, the war began. And you were, and you were there for the war. You've, the photographs exactly. show you were there for the war. Yes, you were there actually when the war began in in Soviet. Well, actually, I'd gone just after the the Maidan Revolution, and uh, it was the beginning of April. And a colleague of mine was in Donetsk, and there was kind of like rumblings, things were happening in Donetsk, 
And, um, I mean, the first thing, the first thing that, that, that happened was Crimea. There was the first, that, that first thing that happened was Crimea. But what I discovered on going to Kiev afterwards was that people, although there were indications that something dramatic was going to happen in the East, I found that kind of a lot of people were in a state of disbelief, even though Crimea had happened. Yeah. They didn't really kind of yeah. see it. They didn't, and, and, and maybe it was having covered wards before, that it seemed clear to me that something was, was, was happening or going to happen. Then I went to the East. I went, I went with my colleague and we went to report on illegal coal mining. It was on a Saturday afternoon and um, it was a story that never got written as a journalistic story. It appears in the book, but the, uh, that day the, um, the rebels and the part of the, the, the Burkut, the uh, riot police who had come back from, um, from Kiev had seized control of the police in, in, in Donetsk and uh, from then on it was, uh, it was uh, downhill. But the, the war actually started with a number of people in apparently kind of civilian movement seizing buildings. Well, they were not only, they were people with guns, and they were, but the police buildings were seized by police, by a lot of, by policemen by police. and former, well, there were some forms of police, yes. People like men from the former, which had just been disbanded officially, the Burkut, the riot police. But many of the people had, the Burkut from, had been, had, because they, uh, Yanukovych had, had taken Burkut from Crimea and from, from the east because he knew that they were kind of going to be much more loyal to him as opposed to... For, was, to there any, was there any sign of... I mean, these things don't just happen. Somebody was organising it. I think, that, I think that there was... Clearly, there was some sort of plan. But the question is whether the, how much kind of Russia itself was involved. Well, we'll see when the history books are written. Yes. But I think that different buildings... You have to imagine that all these buildings in these areas were seized from the inside. And what... what in some... In, I think in different places, in different buildings, it, it, it was done differently. But there's definitely video of, of sort of serious kind of looking soldiers kind of seizing buildings in, I think, in Kramatorsk or Golovka. No, not Golovka, because I was there, but in Kramatorsk, uh, who then just, you know, vanished and then locals were left behind. So I think in different places it was slight, done slightly differently. But it was happening at the same time, which suggests... It happened suggests over a couple of weeks, some, yes. Some organisation. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And then by the, this was in April, and then by the time they got to May the 9th, they wanted to, which was uh, Victory Day, unless I'm mistaken. May the 9th, Victory Day? Yes? Yeah. Yes. That's when they yes. wanted to seize. They, they was, there was a, it was a kind of test whether they were going to seize um, the, the administration in Kharkov, or Kharkiv. Yes. And it was clear they didn't have, a, they didn't have enough people to do it, and they didn't. And... A, a, and a, at that point, it became well. They've never done it, and it still remains outside of. It's never fallen to the, never fell to them. But the other thing that's a bit striking about what happened was the relative lack of reaction from the Ukrainian government. Well, I think there was a complete. Uh, first of all, there was a sort of a, a rather chaotic situation at the beginning. I mean, you just had a revolution. Uh, so, first of all, it was chaotic. That was one of the reasons why not much happened in Crimea, because they'd only been there for like a, like a day or two. I mean, it wasn't... It was, they were trying to sort of take control. So I think that, that's the first thing. The second thing was that they... It was this question of levers of, of, of control, what, what they had at their disposal. It wasn't clear... It wasn't clear... 
Well, I mean, some of the police in the East, ordinary police, were like, didn't really know what to do. Yeah. Often the just ordinary yeah. police yeah, were just kind orders. of... Well, it wasn't that they didn't have orders. They didn't know who was going to win. Uh, and they, they were kind of local, and uh, so they were like waiting to see who was going to win. They didn't really want to intervene. Uh, they just wanted to see who, what, what, was, what was going to happen. And, and the military was not prepared for this, and no one had ever prepared for this. So they didn't really, they didn't really know what, what to do. I have to say that I've, I, I know a security official, an important security official, and he said, you know what? He said, years ago, he did, we said we did this kind of, we wrote this report. He said, and it, well, the report was... Uh, what would happen? It was a theoretical report on what would happen if Russia attacked at the time, uh, just after the Sochi Olympics. Because it's a bizarre thing that they did, they'd done this report. And he goes, But no one. He said, like, I didn't, no, We never believed such a thing would happen. It's because they never believed such a thing. It, it had never occurred to anyone that such a thing would happen, that uh, they had no preparations for it. They really didn't know what to do. So you had kind of, no one was trained. No one knew what you were supposed to do. So that's why it took them quite a long time to, to react. And this is also why, at the beginning, the, the Ukrainian forces did quite badly, because they didn't know what to do. And they had no proper coordination didn't and control. Have much, didn't have much of an army anyway. They had an army on, on, they had an army, they had an intelligence service, they had all this stuff on paper. Yes. But when it came to it, yeah. basically what had been happening for the last quarter of a century was that these people had been paid and not much else. Yes. It wasn't like they'd had... It also, you've got to... They, you know, when it came to equipment, the Russians had already begun to modernise. So some of this... They were giving some of this modern equipment, especially communications equipment, to the, to the rebels and, and backing them up when they, when, when they needed it. But actually what's interesting is that Ukraine was not... You know, Ukraine was a kind of was rather a large arms producer. I mean, yeah. it was like the eighth or ninth largest arms exporter in the world. Okay, a lot of it went to Russia, but the stuff that they produced was fine. It may not have been the most highly, most high tech stuff, but it was fine. But the Ukrainian army didn't have it yeah. because they couldn't afford it. Yeah. <laughs> now they're beginning to get it, yeah. of course. Well, there's big arms dealers all around the world, actually. But um, but your your book is is mainly about. Is mainly about talking to people. Exactly. Did you, did you talk to any of the people who'd been directly involved in, in fighting? I talked to, yes, I, yeah. yeah, but I mean, I talked to, but you... you both sides? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I did, I did talk to people on both sides, but... Uh, What's uh, their story? Well, how did they... I think, let's talk about on the rebel side, I think that most of the ordinary people in the yeah. East who became involved, I think that they never imagined there was going to be a war. They just... And, and you've got to imagine, a lot of these kind of... Not, not only, but kind of like middle-aged men who'd done kind of like humdrum, boring... lived humdrum, boring lives. And they suddenly... I think this is also a little bit true on the Ukrainian side, but, I mean, it doesn't... It, there they kind of had a clearer idea of, of, of what they were fighting for. And the, the, on the rebel side, it was not clear what, what they were fighting for. But I do think that there was an, also this psychological element of people who'd kind of lived these boring, humdrum lives, thinking, this is my moment. This is when I can do something that really counts in my life. And in, and in that sense, they thought... They were thinking, you know, our fathers or grandfathers fought in the Second World War, or our great-grandfathers fought in the First World War, and our 
great great grandfathers. Everybody had a kind of moment in their lives of, of of when they really did something, and I think that a lot of people had that kind of fantasy in their heads. But having said that, yeah. I don't think they really wanted to fight. And I think if they'd got, if they had, on the say on the rebel side, if they had ever thought that they were playing a tiny walk-on role in in starting a, a serious war, which would destroy their livelihoods, destroy their region, and leave it as a sort of weird kind of rotting twilight zone, they never never would have done it. Yeah. I, I should say that I don't know quite if we have roving mics. Is that? Yes. That's, I, I should say that um, the audience is welcome to join in whenever it wishes. If anyone's got a question that they want to put to Tim, you're welcome, you're free to... Uh, well, join in straight away and ask the speaker to speak to us rather than to you. Mm-hmm. Right. And rather... Oh right, okay. I'm sorry. Can, but can everyone hear me? All right. Yeah. Okay, fine. I will. T- yes. I point right. taken. Uh, but I would like to borrow you an easy question. Okay. First of all, you should have had a map so that we know where you're talking about. But after that. My impression of both sides is that they're almost equally obnoxious. Hold on a second. Do you, do, would we like to kind of have a microphone? Because I think that for the p- podcast, etc., you might need the microphone. I was saying that my impression, not being an expert in this field at all, my impression of the two sides is they're almost equally obnoxious. I think the Russians have it but uh, there's not a great deal of merit in the other side either. Well, I would, I would uh, have to say I would beg to differ. I think that there are certainly kind of obnoxious people on, on, on both sides, uh, but after all, uh, you know, say what you like, but Ukraine was attacked and uh, Crimea was uh, taken, taken from it, and, uh, and I think that uh, Putin wanted to uh, re-establish a sort of imperial control over as much of uh, Ukraine as possible. So I think that in that sense, uh, well, certainly there would, may have been obnoxious people, and I showed you that slide uh, there of people I would regard as obnoxious. I think it's fairly clear that, uh, that um, as far as I'm concerned, that, uh, that they were the aggrieved party here. The other point I would make is that I'm rather surprised that you suggested that Ukrainians were surprised by the seizure of Crimea because ever since uh, 1989, Eastern Europe has been full of politicians who kept nudging the West and saying, the Russians are as bad as ever. Please come and protect us. That's why we're in NATO. So I'm rather surprised if you... Well, because I think the Ukrainians regarded the, the, the Russians as, as, as a sort of brotherly nation and they had not expected them to, to do what they did. I mean, there were times in 2008 after uh, the, the Georgian War when there was kind of concern about what might happen in Crimea. But I don't, I don't, think, I think, I don't think the Ukrainians did expect it, no. And they, and they weren't alone. Nobody expected the seizure of Crimea. Every Western government was taken by surprise too. It's, it's not the kind of thing that's happened for quite a long time. So it's not in anybody's... In, it's, you know, occasionally somebody in the Pentagon may sketch out a scenario for this, and that's how they fill their time. But, uh, but I don't know when the last thing like that you can think of happened. 
but it was certainly a long time ago. So it's not in what people regard as normal life. But there was, a, there was, another, there was another question there. Um, thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm the um, former UK Customs Intelligence Analyst for the ex-Soviet countries, and since I left, I've worked quite a lot in Ukraine, including in the summer of 2013, then socially in early November in 13, and then uh, again professionally in April of 14, just after uh, the Maidan. And I would just say before my question, um, I very much side with your view, Mr. Judah. I, I think the gentleman to our right um, is frankly mistaken in, in his viewpoints. I worked with the State Security Service, and I remember having a very powerful conversation with Mr. Nalivaychenko, who was reappointed later after the Maidan, and the, these people are not comparable with what's been going on in Russia over the last number of years. In, in no way are they comparable. My, my question is about the European response. Um, I, I'm not the greatest admirer of the European Commission in Eastern Europe, um, but do you find that um, what what did you think of the, the Western, the Euro EU, and um, particularly the Western European uh, countries' um, understanding of what they were up against um, in early? 2014. Uh, I can't help feel that many of them would have done a lot better to read a lot more of your uh, colleague, Mr. Edward Lucas's work, and indeed your own. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I do think that uh, I do think that uh, uh, you know, in, with hindsight, we can always say that we should have done better, or we should have done this. But actually, what I think is quite interesting is that given the diversity within Europe and the fact that the fact that there were that there were diverse views actually we didn't do that badly and in fact that we have got sanctions and they have been they have been uh, maintained and i think that they made a difference i think this was a case it's very hard to measure how much sanctions made a difference but i think that they have made a difference and they they can they continue to do so so i think well yes probably we could have done we could have done more but actually you know given the diversity we, it was not so, it was not so bad actually it was not one of the it was not I mean, there have been many days in the last uh, two last few years where you could say this was not Europe's finest hour, but this was certainly not Europe's worst hour over Ukraine, well, I think. As you say, this is quite a big choice. But, I, and I can, think of, I can think of lots of things that Europe could have done better, but then I can think of a lot of things British government could do better too. But uh, can I just come back to the, uh, in a way, to the question asked by the, the, the first gentleman? What do you think would have happened... Um, if, the Russians hadn't in, if the Russians hadn't been present, hadn't intervened. And by the way, did you, did you meet any Russians? 
Well, I certainly saw people that I thought were, I, I was pretty sure were Russian soldiers, but I don't, I mean, regular Russian soldiers, but since they were uh, telling, to either at one point who had a, holding a gun to me or, uh, or telling me to get out of there as quickly as possible and they were not about to show me their, their IDs, um, you know, I, I can't swear, but uh, I think that um, given that the way that if they had different uniforms, different communications equipment, etc., I think that on a couple of occasions I'm pretty sure that um, I, I saw them. Um, sorry, what was the question that they had? Supposing, ordered? I mean, supposing the Russians hadn't intervened in the east, what would have happened? Well, I think that we would have had to kind of. It would have been like after the the. the it would have been like after the revolution of uh, ten, 10 years ago, the Orange Revolution, except that uh, this time there would have been a chance that uh, they could have got it right. I think that people in the Keys would have kind of grumbled. But, I mean, I don't think that, uh, you know, I don't think that there was about to be, I mean, without any kind of Russian backing. They, I mean, there couldn't have been a kind of rebellion. I mean, physically, it really couldn't, couldn't have happened. You know, you had to activate these small groups, microscopic groups of, uh, of people around, connected to people like Barishnikov, who we saw, um, some, and ideologues um, who were there to sort of uh, provide a driving force. But I don't think that, you know, these things don't happen kind of like, kind of naturally by themselves. So I think that, uh, you know, I think that there would have been a chance for, for you know, for, I mean, d- difficult but it would have been possible for Ukraine to have had a kind of second chance in the sense that uh, the, the, the Orange Revolution was the first chance, which they lost, yeah. and this was a chance to do it again. Yeah. 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 Oh, yes, I am a bit skeptical about brotherly nation. Uh, Russians towards Ukrainians. If you remember how Ukrainian People Republic was crushed after the revolution 1917, about the famine in Ukraine, persecution, and so on, I think Ukrainians mainly felt very protected by Budapest Memorandum because they took it very seriously. And I am Ukrainian. We all thought that by giving nuclear weapons, we uh, somehow uh, got our security, uh, territorial integrity, and it will be maintained. Nobody would think that it will be violated only 20 years after it was signed, violated by one uh, party which signed, it was signed by United States, United Kingdom, and Russia, that they will violate international law so blatantly, and, and in fact, nothing happens, and people try not to talk about Budapest Memorandum just 21 years ago. So this what I think why everybody was mistaken, and now there are very bitter uh, talks about of giving nuclear weapons and what kind of message it sends to the rest of the world and to all other countries who develop nuclear weapons. Yeah, fair enough. Did anybody okay. mention this you? I don't, I, I, I mean, my, it's, not, it's not kind of overly political, my book. So it's not yeah, kind of like, no. it's not supposed to be a political book. It is supposed to talk about what ordinary people would, mostly what ordinary people were talking about and to take some historical elements, which I think are important for an understanding of the conflict today. Um, but, you know, yes, you do, hear, you do hear views like that, of course. Let's take another question, but let's come to the historical elements okay. in, a, in a second. But let's take another question first, the... Gentlemen there. Thank you. Um, could you tell us a bit more about uh, Ribkov? Because I, I remember when that happened, that seemed to be the point where 
perhaps Russia or whoever was involved in these, I would say Russia, but uh, decided that there's a point of no return because they would, the uprisings in Kharkiv and Odessa had failed and, and then this man turned up dead and, and that sort of seemed to say, okay, we're, we're not going to accept it failing, we're going to use violence. So I just wonder if you could tell us a bit more about him. Well, I don't, I don't know that much about him. I went to the funeral, um, as, you, as, as you could see. Um, but I do think it was one of... It, it, and this is my experience also from the former Yugoslavia. There were certain events, like his death. Um, uh, you know, only just, He was like a local councillor, and he kind of objected when the rebels put up the flag at Golovka. And, you know, that... It, it's just these, it was just it were these events that at a certain point then people realised, oh my God, this is really serious. This is really like, this is not just kind of like turbulence. Yeah. This is, and it was, that's why it was such an important event. And then people began to realise this is kind of turning into, well, yeah, they began to realise this is turning into, into a war, which they'd never thought before. And, 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 it, and it's not surprising, I mean, it's in, but it's my experience as well from, from the Balkans, is that... Is that as an outsider, I thought, this is clear, this is wars coming. I kind of felt it. You know, I could see. I, I could, to me, there was like little bits of deja vu from, from, the, from, the, from the Balkans. And, uh, you know, I would say to people, but can't you see? You know, I went to saw people in Donetsk saying, can't you see? Like, don't you know that there's kind of roadblocks 20 miles up the road? There's armed men up there. And they're oh, yeah, well, I can't blow over and stuff. And you thought, no, it's not going to blow over. But people didn't want to... They didn't want to see it till it was till not until it was too late, but until very, very late in the day, because it, they suddenly realised, well, that's it. You know, like our whole lives have been torn up, and all the middle class people had to leave. Well, not all; they didn't have to, but most of the middle class people had to leave, and 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 everything was going to be a catastrophe from then on, which is the way it has been. But that's why. So I don't know that much about him personally, but it was just as far as I could see, it was kind of one of those small but seminal events. And, and the vast majority of the people, if they could run the clock again, would do it differently, you think? Well, I if think absolutely. What, no, one had a, no one wanted a war. Yes. No yes. one wanted a war. And you'd, yeah. you'd meet kind of rebels at the beginning who said, oh, it's just going to be like Crimea. And you go, by which they meant, oh, it'll all be like the Russians, Russian soldiers will come, it'll all be over in a few days, and uh, then they were fantasizing about pensions and salaries which are going to be four times higher. And that's what, that's what they thought. That's, that's really what they thought. And um, they, didn't have any, they didn't have a kind of sense of what they were, what they were getting into and what they were mani- being manipulated to get into. And I also think that, um, I mean, I, obviously I can't prove this, but I suspect that what happened was that, uh, that uh, they, Putin pressed the button, they took Crimea, and it was phenomenally easy. They also had all those soldiers there. Yeah. At which point, a kind of euphoria took over in the Kremlin, and they just thought, oh, my God, that's so easy. Let's just do it again. Let's see how far we, we, we get. And they had not calculated. They just they had this kind of view of kind of patronizing view of Ukrainians, and they thought, well, they're not going to fight, and they're really kind of Russians who kind of speak a kind of farmyard dialect, and they're not going to fight. And then the Ukrainians began to fight back, and, and they stopped them. I mean, the, the, it's true that they, they didn't have a serious army at the beginning. You had these militias that came, that formed, some which came from, from Maidan. And 
incredibly, they kind of they they stop they stop Russia where well, along the lines that um, it has been it is it's been stopped today. Let's go, let's go back a little, bit to the, a, a little bit to the past because this is a country which has had a surplus of history in the 20th century. And you just have to look at somewhere like, uh, somewhere like um, Lviv, as now we call it. We used to call it Lvov, and before that it was called Lemberg. And I just mentioned in passing that I knew somebody who, very old gentleman, pianist, who had been taught to play the piano when he grew up in what was then called Lemberg by a very old lady who, when she was taught the piano, was taught by Francis Xavier Mozart. Huh. <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> but um, what, about, what about the history? How's that impacted on it? Do people remember... How do people remember the Soviet time? How do they remember the... Uh, because they've been governed by all kinds of people. Um, and the echoes of the, of the German Nazi period as well. I think that all over you've got this kind of quite a kind of uh, a relatively confused kind of remembrance in, in, in some places and, in, uh, uh, and a selective memory. I think that everyone has a kind of selective uh, memory and that one of the Ukraine's problems is it's never been able to, or it has was not in the last 23 years able to kind of, kind of agree really on a kind of historical narrative that more or less everybody uh, uh, agreed to. There's no kind of soundtrack of Ukrainian history which encompasses everybody more or less. Which in Britain would you know you would have the you'd have Churchill or France de Gaulle. I mean, and, but. There's no kind of equivalent of that in, in, in Ukraine, um, which has made um, divisions and playing on divisions uh, that much uh, easier. And then you have this kind of um, contested memories and confused memories about, I mean, most centrally about the Holodomor, the Great Famine of the 1932-33 period, uh, whereby you can have people today in the East talk saying that it was a, a fiction invented by uh, fascist exiles in, in the diaspora, which is really quite extraordinary, especially if they're living in a place like Donetsk and that area was sort of afflicted uh, uh, badly. So you, you do have this kind of this, this kind of well distorted memory and sometimes a, a selective uh, memory um, and that has kind of laid, well, it has laid some people in Ukraine open to the charges of kind of sympathy with kind of fascist sympathizers during the war. And, and, and you'd find, I found that, for example, it was interesting that the, one of the flags that was flown at Maidan, and is, is flown, is the red and black flag. And, of course, this is a flag which was used... Um, during the Second World War. And, but most Ukrainians don't, I think, don't even realize exactly what it is. I talked to an, uh, one academic in, in Kiev, and he goes, you know, this flag, which, the, which stands for that kind of very kind of uh, 20s, 30s uh, concept of blood and soil, is most Ukrainians don't, they don't know that. They don't understand, they don't realize that. It's, for them, it's just a flag of liberation today. Mm. Yeah. But they don't, they don't see that, they don't necessarily 
understand that and therefore it's very easy to, to use it against them in the propaganda. You have in... Oh, well, let's take a, a couple... Uh, I'll ask one question, but then we'll take a couple more from the audience as well. And that is, I was... Uh, I, I hadn't, I hadn't realised till I read your book that, um, uh, that the war started for Ukraine in some way in, 19, uh, in 1939. Um, that the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact... Um, handed over a chunk of Ukraine, which was then part of Poland. To well, you, you could argue it handed over chunks of Poland and uh, Romania, so rather, to... Well, yes, it tanked, of course. I mean, fine, well, let's... Yeah. But it, uh, yes, absolutely, the war began in, 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 in 1939, and this was one of the things, which is one of the confusions of history, is that this confusion about when did the war start, and of course in the Soviet period, well it didn't start in 1939 really, it started in what, 1941 of course because the Soviet Union wanted to gloss over the fact that it had, it had attacked Poland and, and Romania and grabbed these, grabbed these territories so um, at which of course in places like Lviv large amounts of people were carted off to the gulag or shot and uh, you had collectivization and uh, uh, this was, of course, a kind of the cause and reaction uh, led to led to the uh, how should we put it the sort of uh, a lot of the ugliness which came later in the period of uh, nineteen, uh, which which came later during the during the time during the time that the Germans were there. So, of course, um, this was a, an ugly period. So you have people who've collaborated with the incoming Soviets, and then you have people who've collaborated with the incoming Germans. Uh, yes. Or resisted, yes. or yes. whatever. Yes, 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 of course. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Generally speaking, we see a hardening politics of Putin nowadays against Turkey and in Syria. But one of the commentaries from Professor William Hale, uh, he, his remarks about, for example, Hawking politics in Syria is a little bit pretentious because at the end of the day, uh, there are not major differences uh, with uh, West because, you know, there are much more, you know, a scale of mediation uh, with the West. So then, do you think um, Putin may claim back uh, Ukraine much more ambitiously and uh, probably by compromising, let's say, in Syria? Because otherwise, you know, technically, it's been surrounded by all type of adversaries. Georgia, Turkey, and Ukraine, definitely. So what's the weight of Ukraine uh, for Russia to claim back and uh, to have you know, illegal uh, penetration? I, I don't understand the question exactly. The, the, the question basically, uh, Russia fights in many uh, different places, mainly in Syria, and uh, uh, also sending new troops to Eastern uh, Mediterranean and, uh, you know, to protect uh, their, uh, basically, uh, bases and, uh, you know, Eskandin, Kadyrov, again, in Chechnya. And uh, we do see all type of escalation of tension everywhere, even in Chechnya by Kadyrov, you know, because their anti-Turkic, uh, again, uh, announcements uh, quite recently. Uh, the interpretation is this. Uh, Russia may compromise, sacrifice any kind of politics in Syria, but not Ukraine. So then they may come back to reclaim Ukraine, 
permanently, and, uh, it, uh, and then it's going to be put to the table for negotiation with the West. Eliminating well, the major I mean, this is, seems to be a question Syria. about this is a question about um, about Russia, and I'm not sure that I don't know whether you. Well, no, I mean, I no, I take not. your point. I mean, I, what I would what I would only say is I think that um, Syria provided a welcome distraction because Russia had been blocked in Ukraine, and after saying we're going to, after saying we're supporting our people against this sort of fascist Nazi government in uh, Kiev, uh, and then finding themselves sort of boxed in to this uh, kind of small uh, very small kind of area of um, t territory, and having to sort of not done very well on the, on the battlefield really, uh, then um, Syria provided a welcome distraction, and I'm sure that, uh, that uh, Mr. Putin thought that it was possible to perhaps to create some sort of grand alliance um, and in a way to, as part of the deal, to um, have sanctions lifted, which of course he's not f going to do in, in the near future, but in six months' time, well, it's anybody's guess. But I'm sure that that, is, uh, that was sort of part of the thinking, yes. But, uh, um, I mean, the striking thing actually recently is that Putin has managed to make a State of the Union address, or whatever it's called in, uh, in Russia, uh, without mentioning Ukraine. Uh, well, exactly, and uh, I think because there's not much to celebrate about Ukraine and there's n not much more to say about Ukraine. I mean, as I say, I think that the... Uh, uh, the I think that what happened was that um, after... Well, at the time of the Minsk, the last Minsk ceasefire, which was in uh, February, uh, they still wanted to seize this little town of Debalsovo, which they did. Um, and I think that... Debalsovo and Donetsk Airport were these kind of last major defeats for the Ukrainians. But I do think that, well, of course, there were defeats for the Ukrainians, but it took them an incredibly long time. It took the rebels and the Russians, and there were Russians who, especially at Debalsovo, who, yeah. who were backing them up. It took them an incredibly long time to winkle them out of there. And I think that they... I, I, as I say, I can't prove this, but my kind of my gut feeling is that um, they had decided that uh, the only way that they could take more territory um, would be at the price of the of Russian lives. I mean, regular Russian soldiers' lives. And they decided that was one of the reasons that they decided that they were not going to to, to go ahead. And for example, to take Mariupol, which was on the Black Sea, and would have opened the way to creating a land bridge to Crimea. It would have just cost them far too many lives, and it, it would have been very, very difficult, and they balked doing that. The gentleman at the back, please. It's interesting that you, you talk about Ukraine as this divided country with a... a Maybe you put the microphone right sorry. up. Better? No? Better? Yes, that's yes, better. Yeah, go um, ahead. Uh, Ukraine is a divided country with, with different senses of history or different um, views of historical narratives. Um, do you think that, I mean, I was fortunate enough to visit Kiev earlier this year and the, the narrative I got from people I spoke to there was actually this invasion has provi provided a sort of, um, l like you talked about Churchill de Gaulle, um, a founding myth for the country that, and has solidified this, I this sense of Ukrainian identity and so actually maybe Putin's invasion has had the reverse effect. Um, is that something that you experienced talking to people? Was this there, was 
they're this new solidity to the Ukrainian identity, particularly in places in the east, although not obviously in the conflict areas? I think in, in general terms, yes, but I don't, I don't think we should kind of imagine it as a sort of solidified block of kind of kind of Ukrainianness. but I think that uh, there are many people who do think yeah, that this has done, it has done that. And there is this kind of cliche, which is that uh, Putin won Crimea, but he lost Ukraine. And that's what it means, that it means that he's kind of alienated millions of people who never was perfectly friendly towards Russia and uh, never had anything against Russia. So I think that there is, there is an element of truth to that. But I think that there are still swathes of... I don't say swathes, but there's still a lot of people who kind of don't, don't really care or know, like they just, want a, they just want a better life. But I think also it's clear to them now that they're not going to get a better life. But I think at the beginning there was this kind of euphoria. And in places like Bessarabia where I went, which is a kind of quite unusual region... Just south of um, just uh, south of Moldova, and to the let me just get this right to the uh, west of of Odessa, kind of very m- mixed region between Odessa and Romania, basically between Odessa and Romania, and south of Moldova, and then bounded by the Black Sea, uh, where people were kind of quite. Quite pro-Russian, and not there are Ukra- not that many Ukrainians there, and you know, you know, in places like that, they would have thought. A bit like those people that you'd met on I met on the barricades in the east. They thought, well, if the Russians come here and they provide us with free gas and we don't have to pay gas bills and our pensions and salaries all go up four times, so that would be great. But I think at a certain point, and I, I think I know what the point is, and we can come to that, they decided, you know what, we don't want to die for this. And after what happened, after seeing that a war had begun in the east, then... They thought, and we're, this is like, we're not, we're not going to die for this, and this is not worth a war. And we don't care that much about Ukraine. And, but, but I think, but in, in, in a sort of, in a kind of wider sense, yes, you're right, but it's not, it's not like, it's not like everybody's turned into kind of black and white Ukraine, Ukrainians and pro-Ukrainians and pro-Russians. It's like kind of, there's a lot more pro-Ukrainians, and this, but there's still a kind of, some people who are kind of like go one way or the other depending on the situation. And, and I think that there are plenty of politicians. There are plenty of politicians too who will do whatever they think is the best for them and uh, they, will, they will go whichever way they think is the best for them. You said, you said when you were speaking just now um, uh, there came a point when or there was a point at which opinion switched I think and that, you could identify it. I think that the point I think this key point was this uh, fire in Odessa in um, May and there are all endless conspiracy theories about the there were That's May, May 14 May 2nd 2014 yes, no, yeah two, Just right yes, at the yes, beginning yes. almost More yeah. or less, yeah, yeah. Uh, where there had been a clash in the streets between between anti-Maidan slash pro-Russians and, um, and, and pro-Ukrainians, a lot of kind of football supporters and kind of, kind of quite tough people. I mean, it, basically the pro, 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 anti-Maidan pro-Russians retreated into the trade union building. They were throwing Molotov cocktails at each other and the building caught fire and 40-something died. There have been endless conspiracy theories. I'm, I'm just not into... It's just like, it, you know... I think they're all rubbish. I think these people were fighting and the building caught fire and, and they died. And it was a tragedy. But the point, was that, the point is that I think this was this kind of electric point. And at that point, 
A lot of people who were kind of wavering thought, oh my God, this is really serious. This is not just kind of like marching in Crimea. It's like, this is kind of, no, we don't want to die for this. And I think that at that point, a lot of the kind of, it scotched a lot of the kind of pro, kind of potentially pro kind of Russian feeling in the, in, in, in the South and in, in the East and in places like Bessarabia. And the, a lot of the pro Russian leadership fled. At that point, the intelligence services began to get organized and started to arrest people, and a lot of them fled. So that kind of pro-Russian kind of movement was decapitated, and a lot of people just realized this is serious. And, and by which time, it was also becoming clear that as the Ukraine was fighting back, that, well, you could fight back, but look what was happening in Donetsk and in Lugansk. It was just a complete catastrophe, and it wasn't all kind of happy, kind of... Yeah, Russia's taken over and we're all going to get paid loads of money. And then they began to realize this is kind of serious. And I think that, but I think that, that fire was a key event. Um, two questions, Mary and then the lady behind in blue. I wanted to make a couple of comments and then a question. I mean, I agree very much with you about what happened. Uh, I just came back from the south and indeed I went and visited that trades union building in Odessa can you uh, use the mic please oh I am, you, hello yeah, is that better? Yeah, yeah that's better um, and what struck me was that people were extremely proud of the fact in both Odessa and Kherson which were the two places I went to that they'd thwarted a situation that could have been similar to the east Uh, So that was one comment I wanted to make. I also wanted to make the comment that it's not straightforward, Russia taking Crimea. There are horrible human rights violations going on now in Crimea against the Tatars. But also, the guys who've taken over are a bunch of criminal thugs who are really stealing property everywhere. So one should be clear. And, And people in... Ukraine, the people I talk to are very much aware of that. I mean, what struck me... Sorry. Go ahead. What struck me was that there was an awful lot of talk, even from the right-wing conservative Ukrainians, about the idea of Ukraine as a political nation being linked to a concept of democracy born in Maidan as opposed to an ethnic identity, and many of them Mm. were Russians. So I thought that was all very interesting. The question really was was about Putin and his motivations because I suspect that Putin probably felt he'd achieved what he needed to achieve. He's done in Ukraine what he did in Georgia, what he did in Moldova. What I think his worry was that if democracy worked in Ukraine, then that would provide an example to Russia, and that's what he wanted to prevent at all costs. And he, you know, even though it's true that people, as one of the speakers said, have become more patriotic, um, patriotism, the, the effort that has gone into the East, the emphasis on patriotism, does make it more difficult to pursue the kind of reforms that um, would have happened automatically after the Maidan. So in some ways you could say Russia's created a permanent problem for Ukraine that sort of undermines all the things that they're afraid of? Uh, I think that we can't know what's in um, 
Putin's head and we can't know what he really wanted. I suspected that I suspect that he began the whole thing and just thought well let's see how far we can go. What's true of course is that what's true of course is that you're right it is a it is very difficult for Ukraine but the way that Ukraine is where the Ukraine is now if the situation freezes now it doesn't actually kind of stop the, the rest of Ukraine doing all the reforms that are necessary what might do is if the Minsk agreement actually was fulfilled that ironically and that's why I think that the Minsk agreement is not is never going to happen I mean in a sense it's a ceasefire fine but if you had kind of free elections if you had a kind of hostile population in the east uh, kind of electing people who are hostile to to Kiev then it would be it would be difficult so which is why I think that actually Russia Putin has no interest in in at the moment I think he's interested in freezing the situation but I don't think he particularly wants to sort of fulfill the Minsk agreements and and I don't think that um Kiev does either I think that Kiev would rather like freeze it and it's like let's deal with that later because the real struggle today is in Kiev and the struggle is whether whether reformers in Kiev whether there's enough of them and whether they can turn the country around uh, quick enough I think that's the the big struggle and uh, so uh, at the moment I don't and I don't think that I think so long as there's the, the that we have a kind of more or less kind of ceasefire I don't think that that's enough to stop the reformers in Kiev from doing what they need to do the question is whether there are too many people in in the rest of Ukraine with vested interests to stop them doing what they want to do it's a kind of struggle in in Kiev amongst Ukrainians now for the moment can we can we actually just pursue that I've conscious that there's a lady in blue there waiting to ask a question but I wondered if we could just pursue that question about uh, about reform a little bit what does it mean in concrete terms what is it that's going that's gone wrong that's going wrong what 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 needs to be done well basically everything needs to be done and so the question is that you've had 23 wasted years or 24 now wasted years but I think you know, it's a kind of big country uh, and therefore harder to reform than the smaller, you know, the Central European countries uh, were after the fall of communism. With big vested interests, these kind of big, powerful, maybe less powerful, but still powerful um, oligarchs. It's questionable, of course, whether you think that kind of Poroshenko himself is an oligarch, but that's... But, You've got these kind of vested interests to fight against, but let me give you an example. I think an, a, yeah. a, something which really kind of brought it home to me um, recently. Somebody said to me, I went to a meeting and they said, well, You know, we've got like 9,000 judges in more or less 9,000 judges in Ukraine. And I don't want to impugn a whole class of judges, but I mean, many of them are quite corrupt and um, are open to uh, being bought. So some people say, Well, we should just get rid of them all and just appoint 9,000 new judges. But this is when you understand the difference, what, what it means when people talk in kind of these social scientific terms about transforming the system and reform. The fact is, if you replace 9,000 judges and you pay them 200 euros, it's not going to get you anywhere. So it's like, is there, if you paid judges in Britain 200 pounds, they would all be corrupt. Sorry. It's like you've got to transform a whole system to be able to produce enough money yeah. that, less, that money is not being stolen so that you've got a system that actually works, pays people properly, and functions. I mean, the, there, are one or two, there are one or two 
telling little anecdotes about, about corruption. For example, there's the, um, what the finance minister told you about her arrival in her Fa- office. Natalie Oresko, the finance minister... Um, an American-Ukrainian told me that uh, well, she had lived in, she's lived in Ukraine since 1991, but she is now the finance minister. She arrived in her office, and on the very first day, the two secretaries in the office came up to her, and they said to her, uh, Mrs. Minister, will you be paying us the traditional uh, cash bonus? And she says, well, like, what is this cash bonus? What are you talking about? And they go, well, it's basically you're going to pay us so that, other to, so that we don't sell your agenda and what you're doing every day to other people who are interested in what you're, what you're doing every day and to, to know what's going on in your office. And she says, well, like, forget it. I'm not doing that. I said, well, did they stay? She said, well, one of them stayed and one of them left. But she then imported her own secretary to, uh, that she could trust. So, you know, that is how far, that is kind of how... <laughs> sort of depths of it, really, that you've got to, you, you, you can't even trust, you know, you've got to bribe your own secretary not to be bribed by other people. I mean, that's how deep it is. Um, Let's go to the lady, lady in, in blue. In yeah. blue. Thank you. Um, so I have two questions, issues slash questions. One would relate to the issue of, um, or the example of Georgia that we keep coming back to. Um, in my opinion, and I know you mentioned that people couldn't have expected this happening, but I think that if they look only as far as 2008, they could have seen something similar coming up. So if they really had looked at the situation, they could have predicted a little bit in which direction this could have ended up. Now. My question related to, to this area is, if you look into the future, do you think that these two areas in Ukraine right now, Donetsk and Luhansk, which currently are de facto not anymore in Ukraine, because now nobody can say the Kiev government has any word to say there, will end up like the Caucasian um, republics that are now not in Georgia, not in Russia, not anywhere. Nobody really wants to go there because you don't know what you expect. That would be the first issue. And if I can move back to what you said about the sanctions that were imposed to to Russia, Um, I think that if you look at the um, history of uh, economic sanctions imposed against other countries, and I refer here to Iran, there have been studies that looked at the impact of such sanctions on the population and how the Iranian population grew more anti-American as a result of this kind of sanctions. From what you've spoken to people in eastern Ukraine, do you think that such sanctions against um, Russia, which have repercussions on themselves as well, because Ukraine, for instance, stopped electricity or even is, is giving less electricity, water, such basic utilities to them, do you think that makes them more, them, that makes them closer to Russia or closer to Ukraine? Because in my opinion, this kind of sanctions their effect on the population that is directly impacted is actually more negative. And the perceived positive impact is not as big as it's actually believed. Thank you. Um, the first question is, well, obviously I don't have a, a crystal ball, but um, the, the, the conflicts that you refer to, the specifically the four conflicts, and the four kind of frozen conflicts, Transnistria, Abkhazia, South Ossetia, and... Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, I do think that 
if I had to bet some money, I wouldn't bet a thousand pounds on it, but I might bet a hundred pounds that in ten years' time or twenty years' time that uh, that eastern um, that those areas will still be in the same situation as they are now, a kind of rotting kind of twilight zone like like those ones. I think that's probably the most likely scenario. But I mean, I have heard of people in. In, in, there are people in Kiev who have talked about what they call the Croatian model, and by that, the, but they mean that um, with, as the um, the Croats in 1991-92, they lost, or 1991 lost uh, a third of their territory to Serbian rebels. They basically well, the situation was frozen, and they spent the next three years building up their army, and um, Serbia was weakened by sanctions, of course. Um, and then they came back and they, they, took those, they took those back. So, I mean, Russia will never be as weakened by sanctions as, 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 as Serbia was. But, you know, we don't know in a post, uh, post-Putin world, you know, one day it has to happen. You know, what, what, will, Russia, what will Russia do? And what, or maybe Russia would want to get rid of these, rid of these territories and uh, give the green light to, to Ukraine to take them back. Obviously, we can't tell. As to the impact of um, sanctions, well, I think ordinary people in, in ordinary people who in 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 Donetsk and Lugansk or not. I mean, there's sanctions on Russia, and then it's a different topic. Yeah. But I, uh, I mean, I you know, yes, I, I take your point, but it's a kind of it's a very difficult thing. It's like you either what are you supposed to do nothing, right. or you either do nothing or you kind of risk annoying people? Like, well, it's a, uh, that's I mean, a, that's a, a big question. I bet the LSE at some point is going to hold a discuss, panel discussion about sanctions, and we can probably do it. In fact, then. you could probably have a whole master's on they're that. Actually, they're all, actually, Maybe you should do that, a master's story, about sanctions. Actually. The story <laughs> is really, <it's> really <laughs> pretty complicated. Yeah. Well, you and then the gentleman back there, too. In the case, Close. In the, it is argued in the case of eastern Ukraine, the fact that Ukraine stopped the pensions and salaries uh, has really alienated the people in the east rather than, and that Ukraine didn't make enough effort to sort of counter Russian propaganda. And you could make... Uh, the I same, think that's true. I think that's definitely you true. you could make the same argument in relation to Crimea with the Tartar blockade and the recent... Um, cutting off of electricity to Crimea, that it may have completely counterproductive effects. I think that most people in Crimea probably were, I mean, I, I don't know, I was not allowed to go to Crimea because I couldn't get, a, the Russians were not going to give me a visa, but my impression is that most people in Crimea are probably still fairly pro, pretty pro-Russian. But I do think that you're right, that in general terms, that especially the most people who are left in the East have been kind of, Alienated from from Ukraine, definitely, and didn't, and the pensions and the salaries, pensions and salaries, are not completely cut off, but very complicated to get. So and and cut, but you know, I think you know that has alienated people. Yes, but and I think that's one of the reasons why Ukraine is probably not keen to get it back for the moment. It's like, well, we can just deal with that problem later. Let's park it. We've got a bigger struggle to fight, a bigger, the bigger war to fight. In Kiev at the moment, and I think that's 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 the way that they're thinking. 
there's a question there, but I want to follow that up and ask, do you have any impression of how that war is going, the, the war against corruption? I think, it's, I think it's kind of not going great, I have to say. I don't think that it's... Um, I think there are all sorts of allegations and rumours and about uh, people in, and, and in high places, and a lot of people say, well, they're kind of these Ukrainian politicians, a lot of them have reverted to type. Um, but I, 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 you know, I, I don't think that it's a kind of lost, lost cause yet. I, don't, I think there's still, there's still time... There's still time, but time is running out. Um, but I would like to kind of draw a comparison with um, Moldova next door. Where I was there about three or four weeks ago. And actually some years ago already, uh, an analyst that I know in, in, in Moldova had said to me, we don't have pro-European politicians and we don't have pro-Russian politicians. Well, we have a pro-European crooks and pro-Russian crooks. And the last few years, the pro-Russian pro-European crooks have been in control in, in, Moldova, in Moldova and they have stolen just an eye-wateringly large sum of money. I mean, a billion dollars or something. And like, it was just incredible how much only, money. Only much Hamid money. Karzai's brother has equaled this. <laughs> yeah. uh, and so if there was an election today in Moldova, it's very likely that the pro-Russian crooks um, would win. Uh, and therefore, if I was sitting in the Kremlin, I would be very happy that the pro-European crooks had um, delivered Moldova back into the hands of the Kremlin without the Kremlin having to do very much. And I do think that is the sort of worrying template for Ukraine. It's a sort of small prototype. And if, the, if Ukrainian politicians who say that they believe in reform are actually ceding large amounts of money and reverting to type, and there have been, especially in the last few days, accusations that, that some of them are doing that, um, but not just in the last few days, then, then, well, then there's a problem, yes. I think there's a... Uh, but I think there's still, there's still a bit of time, but, you know, won't last forever. Let's take a couple more questions, and then I'm going to... Actually, I'm going to take three questions then, unless I'm missing someone. There's, there's James, there's gentlemen back there, and one here in the front row. And then I'm going to say something myself. Tim, over the past couple of years, you have been sorely missed in the Balkans. And actually, one of the things which um, I think was very interesting for, for those of us Balkan watchers who were trying to follow the events in Ukraine were these stories of people making their way from the Balkans um, to fight on the, the side. And it would be interesting sort of, to hear, did you actually meet any of these people? And more generally, um, what can you say about foreign fighters who, who were making their way to this conflict? Thank you. The, uh, yes, um, I did try and find the, for the, the. I actually went because of this Balkan background to find um, the Serbs who had gone to fight um, in Donetsk, and occasionally, well, especially in Debaltsevo, they had left uh, their football supporters' club graffiti and uh, things like that, so they'd marked their uh, territory. Um, at the precise moment that I went to look for them. One Serbian group had kidnapped uh, another Serbian group and they had um, trussed them up and um, plastered their pictures um, on Facebook to humiliate the... So the Serbs were fighting each other. And I was trying to find... Uh, this, is, this is the Balkans, after all. This is, uh, so I was trying to find the, uh, the Serbs. So eventually somebody says, look, you've got to find... Um, go and speak to this guy in a cafe. So I called him and he was French. 
um, and he was a former French uh, soldier. And um, he goes, oh, my God, the Serbs, yeah, they were just here, but they were kind of, well, he kind of made these hand gestures implying that they were totally drunk. This was a group that had captured the other ones. Eventually, the, uh, the, uh, they, they were let go. And um, there was some serious research done. And basically, you had about 300, or like, it was actually quite a small amount of people. They got quite a lot of publicity. But um, there were relatively small amounts of people from the Balkans um, and from, from elsewhere, a few hundred um, on either side. Um, some of the Serbs had gone because they wanted to kind of to, 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 to fight and fight again. A lot of them, some of them had been kind of working on building sites in, in Sochi or in Belarus and other places, and they decided this was fun and they were going to go and do that. And then you had a few Croats who went to fight, especially with the Azov Battalion, with its uh, neo-Nazi roots. Again, relatively small numbers, and they had videos on YouTube in which they said, well, there was like one in particular where they said, we're looking forward to meeting our Serbian brothers again on the battlefield. And, um, but again, quite small numbers. And at first, the, the, the Serbs have got a problem because the Serbs uh, cannot go back home because, because Serbia and Bosnia and Kosovo have passed laws which were basically designed to stop people going to fight in Syria, which said that people can't go and fight in foreign wars. But Croatia didn't do that, and so the Croats could go back, and at first the Croatian foreign ministry was saying, well, you know, people came to fight for us, it's fine. What they didn't quite understand at the beginning was that these were kind of lunatic, pro-Ustasha, extreme right-wingers who had gone to fight with the Azov Battalion, where then it became a bit more embarrassing. In the end, we were not, they were not very large. They were not very large numbers, I have to say. Um, and I couldn't know Albanians. I couldn't find any Albanians. But there is, I do talk about the Albanian village of uh, yeah. Bessarabia. Yeah. Um, Let's have a second, another question. question. also indirectly about the Balkans. Do people raise with you, do pro-Russians raise, raise with you Kosovo as a precedent for the right to self-determination? Um, and the reason I ask that is I've had conversations with Russians who say that the West displays a double standard by supporting Albanians in Kosovo, but not supporting Russians in Ukraine? People don't really understand. They don't understand the book. They don't really know much about it. So people do talk about that, but it's a kind of garbled version, and they don't really understand that the situation was really completely incomparable and that kind of Albanians in Kosovo were repressed, severely repressed and oppressed uh, for the last uh, 20 or before 1999, obviously. Even up to a point over 100 years, actually. Well, yes, you can, you can argue that, and which was obviously not the case in, in Ukraine. So it was like people do make some sort of garbled comparisons. And they don't really, they, don't, they just don't know much about it. So, for example... Um, uh, one of the ideologues of um, Nova Rossiya said, it's outrageous that the West recognized um, or that Montenegro could become an independent country because in the past it had only been independent for a week. He says, it's just, just garbage. It's just total garbage. But a lot of them believe these bits of garbage. They don't understand and they want to obviously take the bits which are convenient to, to them. President Putin himself suffers from this fault. <laughs> um, and then the question here. Um, do you see a wider trend here? We see China in the South China Sea and Russia um, holding the keys to Damascus, making territorial acquisitions and violating sovereignty. 
um, in quite an easy way without much. Obviously, we've had economic sanctions from Europe and the US, but do you think that essentially there will need to be some kind of um, military backstop for Europe and the US, not just economic sanctions, but that uh, there needs to be some kind of movement? As you said, Putin was going as far as he possibly could until something actually happened. I, I think that that's been happening, but I don't think it's kind of very uh, overt. Uh, I think that now a kind of much more kind of organized force, the Ukrainian military is a much more kind of organized force. A lot of the militias are kind of brought in under control, more or less under control. And there's no shortage of weaponry in Ukraine. They've got uh, just a vast amounts of, of weaponry, just like, like Russia has got vast amounts of weaponry. And at one point I talked to these... Uh, artillery crews and I said well like they had this kind of you know artillery and they could fire 20 kilometers and Mm -hmm. it was kind of old Soviet stuff it had never been used it was fine it was in perfect condition could fire 20 kilometers and I go well what is it that you want they go well you know what the thing is that what we don't have this stuff this stuff is fine we don't have these modern targeting systems so today if you have a piece of artillery or a mortar you can attach some sort of radar type equipment so it can see the incoming shell and it immediately can you can immediately target where it's coming from and boom you're kind of going to hit the the, the people who are firing from you and those things are now coming to ukraine the ukraine the americans have been giving them they're very expensive they're not there they haven't given them that much but those things, are, I think, are beginning to come, and that begins to change the strategic um, balance in, on the, in the favor of uh, the Ukrainians. There's quite a lot of training going on. The Americans are training. The British have done some training. Um, so, but as I say, I think the Ukrainian military has kind of learned on the job, but it's these kind of crucial kind of bits of kind of modern high-tech equipment. And, and the Russians have been modernizing their forces. They've been giving kind of high-tech, modern, kind of especially communications equipment to the, to, to, to the rebel side. But it's these kind of bits and pieces which are missing. And you don't have to make a kind of big hoopla about it. You don't need kind of NATO soldiers. You don't need any of that. It's just these bits, these certain things to fill the gaps. And as I say, I think discreetly that's happening. I I make one comment on that question, and then I'm going to wind this up. On that question, is there a general tendency towards kind of disregarding international boundaries and this kind of thing? Well, I don't know. I mean, I think that China has always had a rather particular view of its neighborhood, Um, and it signed different treaties about the law of the sea and that kind of thing, but I'm not sure that they took those as seriously as they took their view that the neighbors were there generally to do what they were told. Um, uh, And um, so I think that there's a question of adjustment is going to take place there, but who's going to do the adjusting, we don't yet know. Um, With Russia, um, well, Russia again has maybe a slightly similar view of its neighborhood. Um, And uh, they've discovered that Ukraine wasn't actually what they thought it was, uh, but that hasn't changed their view that it ought to be like that, that it ought to be uh, subordinate in some way to, to Russia. True. But do they, how many but, people want to die for that? Well, that's, that's the question. And the, the, perhaps the problem is that it's quite a long time since we had a really ghastly war in Europe. 
and people have forgotten what it's like, so they're ready to take risks at the moment. Uh, although you could argue that the Russians yes. were stopped. Actually, they turned then. out to be careful. But, but yes. you, you, yeah. I want to bring this up, is well. that you've just been involved in a, in a report for the OSC, which you presented last, last week in Belgrade at the OSC meeting, and it does talk about the future of yeah. European security and Ukraine. I think we maybe ought to arrange something separate on that, actually. Okay. Because it, it, but just in it a few words, a tell us about that. Well, what that says is it says um, it's time that people tried diplomacy. I don't think that actually it's going gonna, it's gonna to be very easy to make this work quickly. But um, uh, there are a whole lot of people who haven't been talking to each other seriously about we used to live in a Europe where there was a very clear dividing line. Uh, roughly around 1975, when the time, the time when it was agreed. Uh, and it was agreed in lots of different ways through Germany's Ostpolitik, uh, through the Berlin agreements and those kind of things. And after that, there was what in practice amounted to a Soviet sphere of influence, and then there was a Western sphere as well. And that had many ugly features, um, but at least people stuck to the territorial the territorial division was relatively clear. We now have a circumstance in which um, there's a territorial no-man's land uh, between the countries who've joined NATO and the borders of Russia. Um, And it's not an accident that those countries all have so-called frozen conflicts there. Um, And until we can achieve some agreement on what the status of those territories are, what the status quo is, um, uh, I think there's going, to be, there's going to be a continual series of risks. Now, how you can reach agreement, because probably most of the countries would love to join NATO, but that's probably not, gonna, that's not going to be acceptable for some of the big neighbours, one big neighbour anyway. Um, whether you can achieve... Uh, an agreement that everybody can accept on on the status quo or not, that's another matter. But somebody should try and somebody should have serious discussions about subjects which are very difficult for people to discuss because it's much easier to live by mantras like every country has a right to belong or not to belong to an alliance. But is NATO actually going really seriously to offer membership to these countries or not? And until you know the answer to that question, uh, you're leaving them in a very cruel position. And so we ought to talk about those difficult questions. Uh, And probably this needs to be done in confidence. Probably it takes a lot of time. But I think there's been negligence in not having serious discussions. That's really what this says. It says it in slightly less brutal language. What I wanted to tell you about, though, was I wanted to tell you that... um, The book, which we didn't really discuss enough, is on sale outside. The the great merit of this book is it's what you might call pre-history. It's it's about the country before the history has been written. In 10 or 20 years' time, people are going to write books which simplify everything and explain to you that there was a great movement this way and a great movement that way, and that was why it happened. What this book tells you is that everybody in this country is different. They all got, and this is a country which is probably more diverse than any other country you can imagine in Europe. I don't know about that, actually. They're all diverse, but 
This is very striking in, the diversi- in its diversity, diversity of historical memories, in diversity of geography, of ethnic origin, everything you can think of, with zebras in the middle of it as well. Um, uh, and it tells you a series of stories about all of the different people here and how they view their past and their future. And in due course, this is going to be wiped out by historians telling you that there was a great trend in this direction or that direction. Actually, it's much more complicated. And if you want to understand the complicated, the complexity of it, this, I think the book is an extremely good place to start. Thank All you. human interest. Thank very, you very much. Yeah. So, go outside. So, my advice is go outside and buy the book. Thank you very much. Thank you.